To the False Neutral, episode 32. I'm your host, Peter Tonchinomi, and yes, that is now my real name. And Eric and Garrett are with me. Hey, hey. How's it going? So you had it legally changed to Tanchinomi? I registered Peter Tanchinomi as a legal alias, a legal DBA. Oh, yeah. Because nice. half the people knew me by my <clears throat> real name, half the people knew me by Tanchinomi, and it was just easier to just have one professional name. So I want to know if your wife has ever embraced the Tanchinomi alias. Has she, does she use it now as like her own kind of alias in a way? Oh, not at all. No, she, oh, yeah. she's like whatever. That's your that's your weird <laughs> thing you do. I refer to her as Mrs. Tanchinomi every once in a while. She rolls her eyes. So, yeah, I like it. Uh, did not have a podcast last week because I was traveling. I was spending time. Being surrounded by the beautiful people of Quebec and uh, did not get to my spider's hometown. We didn't get within about 100 miles of Valcour, so didn't go up and see the factory or anything, but uh, was up in that beautiful, beautiful part of our continent. Uh, but we're back. It's been a while since we've all met together. Yeah. Old news? Anything going on with project bikes or garage uh, work? If If you thought it wasn't possible... The TX750 is finally 100% good to go. Done. So, so you've actually proven this by yeah. taking it out and riding it and not oh, yeah. breaking down or not having... I even, I even rode it more than once <laughs> just to prove <laughs> that it was working. Yeah, so... And, and now that it is working right and has the proper timing and flywheel and all that other stuff, mm -hmm. uh, is it as good as you thought it was going to be when you bought it? Yes, the, oh. the short answer is yes. The long answer is absolutely yes. When I got it corrected, so I put the right jetting in it, figured out that the flywheel was not right, and, and, and adjusted the timing accordingly. The first, the very first kick, it just started so much easier, and you could tell right away that it was a completely different motorcycle. And I went out and rode it, and I, I just had the biggest smile on my face. And maybe not so much because it was running properly but because i have probably 70 hours of labor into it to get it to this point and i finally had the victory oh it felt good your so, long national nightmare is over oh god i'm so excited so i uh i had a couple of days to ride it before the weather turned crappy here in the northwest and one of the days was about 90 degrees and so that was a good test because it's an air-cooled motor and it gets really warm. And previously, I had rode it on about a 90-degree day and had a bunch of detonation issues. So rode it on the 90-degree day and it just worked flawlessly. Ran perfect all day. And so is so, this still a, oh my goodness, I want to get rid of this bike as quickly as I can? No, 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 no. Th it's this one, It's back to being a keeper? Yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah. It's, this one is going to stay. So that is incredible news. And then uh, my good friend, Joe, just bought uh, FC09. It was, I wouldn't call it an impulse buy. Uh, there was a demo day here pretty recently in town, and, and Yamaha had all their lineup. And he was interested in the FC09, 
went and rode one along with the FC10 and, and a whole bunch of others, the XSR900, and decided he really wanted an FC09. So a couple weeks went by, and he scraped together some funds, and he went out and bought one. And I actually went with him to the dealership to buy it. And really, really neat motorcycle. But I rode it for the first time the other day. And I got to be honest, it is not nearly what I hoped it would be. And and I mean that mostly in terms of the suspension. Which, so, when we get to today's news, we'll, we'll talk about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I, I like the motor. I like the power delivery for the most part. So it has a B mode, a standard mode, and an A mode for the engine map. And B mode is really sluggish. I'm not even sure when you would ever use B mode. I mean, it seems even too sluggish for really slippery conditions. Standard is okay, but A mode... And I know that Yamaha has worked on this a little bit over the past couple of years that they've had the FC09, but A mode is still the the fueling is awful. It's really jerky. Um, going from c- closed throttle to just cracking open the throttle, it's just way too harsh. I, and I've heard that um, about several of their bikes with with different mm-hmm. drive mappings yeah. on them or yeah. throttle mapping. It's and, it's their ride by wire. They just don't. They, you know, they may have figured it out for MotoGP, but they haven't figured it out for this for a street bike. Right. So that, um, you know, I, I know that there are tunes to help, um, aftermarket tunes to help that out a little bit. Um, the riding position was pretty good. The foot pegs are up a little bit higher than, than you would think would be a good comfortable position, but it also has a pretty good lean angle. So I could see that the foot pegs that need to be up a little bit, but the suspension. So I left a parking lot and just outside of the parking lot was a speed bump. I'm only 170 pounds. When I went over the speed bump, it just felt like I was riding a marshmallow. And for a semi-sports bike, it was almost dangerous in turns where there is some bumps because of the softness of the suspension. It just threw the chassis off completely. So it's a really cool bike. I like it. I like how much torque it has, and I like the power and all that. But the suspension would have to go. It was awful. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, but I guess the hot ticket on those is to buy a ZX6R shock, which has the same eye-to-eye, approximately the same uh, spring rate, but a little bit stiffer, but a lot more control. The stock rear shock on the FC09 has a rebound adjustment. That's it. Uh, ZX6R shocks, you can get used for 50 bucks, and they have high and low speed dampening, rebound, and all sorts of witchcraft. So it's an inexpensive fix uh, for the rear shock anyways, but... It so needs it. I have to ask, on the demo day, did you go to the demo day and ride anything? No, I ended up not being able to get out there, which I was pretty disappointed about. Um, more than anything, I want to ride the FC10. But Yeah, I know you said uh, that. I was going to ask you whether that was something you had a chance to get out on. My friend rode it, and, and he thought that it was really comfortable to ride. And it does have all of the fancy rider controls and whatnot. Uh, sadly, I didn't get to ride it, but maybe sometime soon. So that's all of my news. Eric, what have you been up to? Any Anything? I have traveled of? most of the month of September, uh, so I've had zero time to do much. Uh, I think I needed to get a new set of points for the XS400. And then I also found out when I came back from a trip to California that the car that I was going to use for winter uh, is not going to be able to be used for winter because turns out, uh, I have a very classic problem with the 2004 to 2006 escapes, 
Ford Escapes where in the right rear wheel well where the uh, shock mount goes to the frame and some other stuff, it tends to rust out. Well, when I kept hitting these bumps and I just kept hearing all this rattling noise going, what the hell is that? And then I get home and I look and yeah, I've got that where it's almost completely rusted out all around there and there's no nothing holding the shock mount to the frame, <laughs> the top of the shock mount to the frame. I'm like, okay. So so does that mean that it's effectively total? Like, no, it's it's definitely fixable, but it'll take oh, about it okay. fifteen hundred to two thousand mm. uh, dollars, and the car is worth maybe three. So I've got to in the next couple of days take some pictures, put it on Craigslist, and hope someone will give me fifteen hundred bucks for it, and where they'll go and they'll fix it, and then for a winter car. Because other than that, it's it's a great vehicle. I mean, I just drove it to Toronto and back in in August, and. Uh, just put new front tires on it. It's got 177,000 miles, runs great, gets 25 miles a gallon on the highway. So someone could get a great car if they can fix it. But I don't know. I have a welder. I don't have the time. I don't have the knowledge to fix it. But someone who does, you know, put six hours into it and be good to go. So I yeah. was uh, once in the same predicament with a 81 uh, Toyota Tercel that my mom bought mm. and I inherited and I drove that for years and I, it got some rust around the gas filler cap where that inside was welded to the fender where those spot welds were. There were got some rust in there. So I was cleaning out and I happened to look in the trunk and the rear shock towers were integral to the side of the trunk. And I kind of looked up and I was like, wow, that's, that's really delimited. And I could push my finger through oh, the shock tower where the, uh, mm-hmm. where the shock was. And I'm like, there's nothing there holding it. And it only had like a hundred and, I think 180,000 miles on it and it ran great. I think I'd replaced the starter and the battery and brakes is all I'd ever done to it. And I was really hoping to hold onto it for a long time. And I'm like, yeah, this is not something I'm fixing. So I put an ad in the paper and, uh, you know, some guy, Oh, I can fix that. Yeah. It'll be great for my daughter. She's going off to college. I can just weld some stuff in there. <laughs> and I'm like, great. You can do it. I didn't even have a garage at the time. I'm like, great. Turn around and bought a Toyota truck. Those have some frame rust issues over time, too, like the Toyota Tacomas, well, mid-90s. I didn't, I, did, I didn't hold on to it long enough. Mine was a, even pre-Tacoma. It was a 92 that I bought new, and I oh, yeah. drove it till 96 and got rid of it. Yeah, that's mainly why I'm glad they don't salt our roads. Mainly because I moved back roads. to Kansas City, and it didn't have air conditioning, and no air conditioning in Kansas City is really a bummer. And it also yes. made it really hard to sell in Kansas City. Well, let's talk about bikes rather than cars. We might as well, right? Uh, That's what we're here for. Oh, I one one other piece of old news. I did contact the son of Mr. Harper, who had the 300 and some bikes that got auctioned off a couple weeks ago that I talked about. And I asked him specifically how much the Moto Guzzi 250 four-cylinder went for and the Jalera 202, the two bikes that I was really interested in. The 254, which was missing the airbox and I don't know how close it was to ever running went for $2,200. The Jalera went for $2,900. Both of them probably about 40% more than I thought they were worth about 30% more than I was guessing somebody would want to pay for them. But I can't say I'm surprised because I really didn't know. I mean, bikes like that, who knows what they're worth. I'd never seen one up for sale before. So I was very pleased I didn't try to take Friday off and end up very disappointed that I was 
such a cheapskate and had no chance of buying anything I might have been interested <laughs> that day. When, when, when you have something that that's either that odd or that rare and someone just has to have it for the collection and there's two people who want it, that's the key, right? Yep. Right. Yep. And that was so highly advertised and so well attended. I knew there were going to be more than one person who was passionate about every single motorcycle there. So. Yep. And, you know, they didn't have titles for them and stuff like that. So it would have been a major hassle even when you got them and got them running to, yeah, it was just, okay, that's, yeah, it actually kind of made me happy. I kind of went, oh, okay. I don't, I don't need to worry about that. I made the, I made the correct decision. (laughs) Yes. Uh, so yeah, Intermont, uh, was this week. And then in a couple of weeks, we've got the, the one in Italy or a couple weeks, couple months, like it's early November, maybe or a month and it's early November, the one in Italy. So. Uh, we should be seeing some more some more bikes too. But holy, I, I I made a comment to a friend of mine last night, and I'm like, I haven't seen this many new bikes introduced at one time in probably a decade. Yeah, and there's quite a few of them that I'm actually really excited about too. Or, or I should say, if not new, strongly refreshed and uh, as well, yeah. right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, a couple couple interesting ones. Um, yeah, there's two that I'm actually really excited about for a personal level is because there's something that I might be interested in buying in the next few years, um, maybe five years, six years. But uh, at any rate, the uh, super sport Ducati, mm-hmm. I like the idea of a less extreme Ducati sport bike, right? Yeah. Because a Panigale is-, is not really something that you would just want to buy and commute to work on. Right. Uh, but the and, super and maybe, sport, and you maybe don't want a monster or something because it's too standard well, or too whatever. Damn ugly. <laughs> well, there's that, yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, as soon as I saw it, I'm like, oh, cool, an old 900 or like the 900 SS that I remember from the you know from the early and mid 90s, you know. Yeah, right. So it's got a, a little bit better riding position. The handlebars are a little a uh, bit higher. It's got a really linear and low RPM torque curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 113 horsepower, so it's enough to have a lot of fun with, but not so much that it's going to be too aggressive. Um, I don't know what the price is on it, but I just It'll like the 14. whole concept. It'll be 14 grand because it's a Ducati. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so that's the thing is for, you know, you're, I would have a tough time spending 14 on basically a budget Ducati when there, I don't know where it competes, you know, with what other bikes it's going to compete with, because it's quite a bit more expensive than a lot of them. But it's it's kind of a I don't know if you call it a budget Ducati, but it kind of is. So but I like the concept. I think it is a budget Ducati, which is exactly why none of us know where it fits. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mean, it's but it's not exactly it has a lot of rider aids and a lot of technology in it. Um you know, not not so much as uh, some of their uh, flagship sport bikes, but still, I mean, it's got it's, a lot of stuff that you would expect a Ducati to have, but it's just a well, smaller it, motor or less it, power. Well, does it's it, in line with their top level monsters and the Street Fighter and stuff like that? At you know, and those are high thirteens to low fifteen. So um, that's why I figured it would fall into there because it kind of falls into that kind of segment. You know? Yeah, it's um, tough though because a monster it's not in a class of its own, but it's tough to find anything that's really a lot like a monster. Um, this, on the other hand, I feel like there is a more bikes that are similar to it that are $4,000 less in price, yeah. but 
Um, speaking of the monster, the other bike that I'm really excited about was the R9T Racer. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that it is very similar to what the monster does, but way more attractive. Uh, I hate the aesthetics of the monster, but I like the idea of what the monster is. Um, the R9T looked like it had about 110 horsepower, um, a big twin, and it's retro, and I like it. I, I thought it looked pretty cool. I, th- I think that, actually, if you look at the the monster, I would think that the R9 Pure would be more like, you know, without the fairing, yeah. would be closer to, to it. But I really like the racer. It's interesting that the Ducati Supersport's 113 horsepower. So, you know, you can, you can get your big twin with about the same number in either a retro package from BMW or a really modern looking package from Ducati. I wonder what the price difference would be, but I personally would have to go with the, the R9T racer. Well, I mean, if the, the regular, if the regular R9T is fifteen grand to begin with, there's probably going to be a premium on the racer. I'm sure it'll where, be eighteen. Where the pure is kind of where you'd think that the R9T should have been with in the first place. Taking, you know, they've kind of simplified it and uh, hopefully not stripped it down too much. But um, hope you know that'll probably be more in the high elevens, low twelves, kind of along the lines of where the Scrambler is going to be priced. Yeah. The R9T Pure, or, you know, it has a lot of the same similarities. The reason why I like the racer so much is because of that front fairing. But um, I don't know. The suspension is probably pretty good, but it doesn't have inverted forks on it, which I thought was uh, kind of a letdown. Um, but everything else I really like about it. So at any rate, those are the two motorcycles that I saw to the show that I was pretty excited about. Was there anything that struck you guys? Other than those, the updated BMW K1600 GT visually hasn't changed all that much, but they've done all kinds of new stuff with the electronics and mapping and stuff like that. And, uh, they've upgraded it to the, is it ABS Pro? Uh, all the fly-by-wire stuff has been greatly improved. Uh, I was really surprised, not by the bike, but by myself. Uh, Rider Magazine posted on their Facebook page, and I saw the picture, and for the first time went, wow, that's that's a nice bike. I, I could get into that. Because when they first came out in 2010, 2011, something like that, I was like, wow, two different versions of the same fat pig, and I haven't paid <laughs> any attention to them since then at all. And I guess with some some time to get adjusted to it, I kind of went, wow, that's really nice. Yeah. I, yeah. I could get excited about that. So uh, it's still a really big bike, but for some reason, looking at it, that is kind of cool. And it's not even that it looks that much different. I think it's just been so long since I've even taken notice of it. Yeah. Well, it's got, surprisingly, 130 foot-pounds of torque. That is pretty astronomical. (laughs) And yeah, it's a big bike. It's seven apparently, and I haven't even looked at it. I'm just looking at the website right now. But 736 pounds. Um, it probably rides. I'm guessing like it's a lot lighter than that. It's probably decently sporty, but um, 130 torque. That's a lot. Uh, 
that reminds me. One thing that I thought was pretty interesting, too, about these bikes that are coming out is Suzuki's GSX-R1000 has got variable valve timing mm-hmm. on it. Have you guys looked at that a yeah, little bit? Yeah. It's a mechanical system because per G, uh, MotoGP rules, they can't use electronic aid for the valve timing. So they developed a, a ball-bearing centrifugal force actuator that does it. I thought that was pretty cool, but it made me think about why that hasn't been a thing in motorcycling. I mean, that came out in cars in the early 2000s. And so why Honda had it in the VFR um, in the VFR 800, I believe. And it was a variable, variable. It was VTEC. But is that actually the same thing or is that just an alteration to the ignition map? No, it's, it's it's, just the valve timing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I don't know that that there was that well received. Well, of course, the, they did something with the VFR, which made no sense. And yeah, you know, everyone hated every other next iteration of it, just making it work. Anyway, so um, it's probably a cost thing because motorcycle people tend to be very cost conscious, and well, I and gotta I believe that, that's that's got. I'm talking be, about racing, really. Oh, uh, I, I well, think I think also it tends to put weight up high. Yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, where exactly. you notice it more. On a bike, having more uh, mass high on the engine, and, and Ducati hasn't really didn't really need it because they've they've got their Desmo valve valve train. They're able to run much more aggressive cams uh, with with the spring pressure, so they didn't really need to go with uh, with the variable valve timing. Yeah, well, and also more inherent torque in the V twin motor. But with the inline fours, they can definitely benefit. Um, you know, I, well, both in racing, but also on the street with the variable valve timing to allow it to have a lot more low end torque. I, I think part of it is the mass difference between bikes and cars. You can have a bike that doesn't have a whole lot of torque and the mass of the vehicle is so much smaller that you don't need super low gearing to get off the line with it without, you know, bogging the engine. So I, I think it's probably more of a necessity with cars because you've got so much from a standstill, you've got so much more mass that you need to get moving that it makes more sense with cars. But I I do agree that the all mechanical valve actuation that they came up with was pretty slick. I get so frustrated with Suzuki because half the time they come up with this really cool stuff and the rest of the time they just phone it in. And I just wish they could just, be consistently cool. Well, I, they, I think they are there the, now. They are the smallest of the uh, four Japanese motorcycles, and um, and and didn't in a previous show we say that those are probably the least reliable of the four Japanese motorcycles. Is that what we came up with? Well, I, I, I think I that. said they they're the most all over the board. I mean, they come up with oh, some stuff that's just absolutely rock solid. And even on the same bike, you'll have you know a bike with an engine that's totally indestructible. And then, you know, you have all kinds of little accessories on it that you have problems with or vice versa. But Suzuki also did at the show, they, they showed off the, um, GSX-R 1000, 1000RK or whatever. And then they had the, um, the two V-Stroms, the, uh, the 650 and the 1000, and then they're doing a special 1000 that's going to have the spoked wheels, which I guess was always a, a thing. Cause everyone who took the V-Stroms off road before, got tired of bending those wheels, and apparently those wheels are pretty expensive on the V-Strom. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the XT model's really, really attractive, and I'm not a big fan of the V-Strom series. Yeah, it, it looks like a much more serious adventure bike. 
Yeah. For me, I like the V-Stroms a lot. Um, and I'm glad that they have a spoked wheel option for it. But without looking at it too much, I still like the Africa Twin a little bit more. But, you know, the, the spoked wheels, like you were saying, Eric, that's a big improvement. Because if you do some, you know, pretty aggressive off-roading and you crack or fracture or or bend a cast wheel you're screwed. I mean, you're yeah. just absolutely screwed, but the spoked wheels, they can take some abuse and still keep going. On on a side note, a, I did see an Africa twin yesterday around here riding and you, you see the paint job and you're like, Oh, Hey, yeah. that's that bike. You know, so I'm yeah. going by at the, sorry, I'm pointing and making visual gestures on an audio podcast. I can uh, see it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I saw one of those. And then, uh, motorcycle.com just did a, uh, pretty big, comparison and it essentially tied for first place uh with their for their adv bikes which one tied for first place the, the africa twin with the v-strom ktm sorry oh KTM. okay yeah that was which speaking of ktm so they've they've tweaked the 1290 and now they have a 1090 and i'm trying to figure That's out weird. the niche for the 1090 because it's Okay, it's 20 pounds lighter. I mean, it's down to like 471 dry, which actually isn't bad, although by the time you load it up with fluids, it's probably well over 500. Um, but are they going to price it that much less? Or are they moving the 1290 up to being a $23,000 or $25,000 ADV bike to hang on to slot the 1090 in there? I'm, I'm, I'm trying uh, to find the spot for it, you know? Well, it is kind of weird to have a 1090 in the 1290. The 1290 is it's absurd really to think about that kind of a motor and an adventure bike. Um, but I, I could see it being pretty expensive. I mean, heck this just a super Duke is uh 17, nine. Um, I could see that the adventure being a couple thousand dollars more than the super Duke. Um, but it is just kind of weird to have a 1090 adventure and a 12. It just doesn't seem like there's a good separation there mm-hmm. of bike it, it, it seems like it would if anything just kind of confuse buyers um, an 800 or a 900 sure i think that's a right. big enough step yeah you know? um, i liked the old 990 adventure mm-hmm. and so it seems like you know especially if if it were a completely different engine architecture and all that and you just had a a big torquey but not super aggressively powerful 900 or 1000 cc maybe a, a, a parallel twin or something. And then you have your big monstrosity 1290 V twin. Um, that would be reasonable, but um, right now it just doesn't seem like there's a good clear separation between what the two bikes are doing. So, and it could be, maybe they'll get rid of the 1290. Uh, uh, there was the 11. So I'm, I'm sure they'll get rid of the 1190. Cause they had that kind of running parallel with it. Which so was truly yeah. really confusing as to, yeah. If you're not really up on KTM, you're like, wait, no, wait, which, which one do you have? Um, yeah. Well, yeah, especially the adventure bikes in the past, oh, five years or so, they've just been all over the place. Like, they, it doesn't really seem like they can settle on what they want to do with them. Right. And so I, I, I did see something in the press release, though, on the 1090 was that the power and torque it has is the same as the old 950 race bike of one of their riders who won Perry Dakar back in the day, which yeah. is, you know, of course that's just progress in general, but right. But even, um, according to KTM, the 1090 makes 125 horsepower. That's not bad. It, it, no, it's astronomical. Um, 
That's more than the Africa twin, right? Oh, yeah. The Africa twin makes 99 or 98 or something like that. It's just just shy of 100. Um, You know, and this isn't even their big bike. Right. You know, the the 1290, at least in the Super Duke form, uh, at the tire, it makes 160. uh, But 125, you know, for kind of a lower model and then 150 or so in the upper model, just it doesn't. I, I don't know what the difference is, really. Unless you want to spend several thousand dollars more for 25 more horsepower. I don't know. It's, it's confusing. I, I'm i sure in the next couple of years, they'll get rid of or alter one of these models. I'm either that or one is truly going to become more of a street tour with adventure bike look. And the other one's going to be for the real hardcore. Well, you know, but they have that now because they have the 1290 uh, GT. And they also have the Adventure. And so why not just get rid of the Adventure, uh, 1290 Adventure, keep the GT, because I really like that bike. I like the idea of the huge, powerful, aggressive tourer. Um, and then keep the 1090 Adventure R, because it re- realistically, it's a 1290 Adventure is just absurd. I mean, to have that much power in, in a off-road setting is kind of crazy, really, but... So, at any rate, that's my KTM rant. Uh, I think we should talk about Triumph because I'm 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 kind of scratching my head a bit over the new Triumph offerings. Uh, basically, they came out with they've had the Speed Twin that was the 900, and then they had the larger Bonnevilles. They came out with the Bonneville T100. Uh, which is the 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 old, more vintage-looking spoke wheel style of the Bonneville T120 with the uh, straight twin motor in it? That kind of makes sense to me as just kind of a, a step in the range. But I think we're kind of getting to the same point with Triumph as we were with the. Uh, KTMs, are you just cannibalizing your own sales from your other bikes by offering more? It, it, it's like, do you really need to have a 900 with cast wheels, a 900 with spoke wheels, and the larger bike with spoke wheels? And then they came out with the Street Cup, right. which, <laughs> which is their term for it is Urban sports, which I am very quickly learning to hate that term. It doesn't mean anything, but that's it's what no. they use to describe the bolt. That's what they do. It's like anything Hipster. that means we want hipsters to buy this. It's a marketing <laughs> invention to yes. try to differentiate it's a like product that doesn't door, need differentiation. It's like four-door coupes among cars. It's like, no, <laughs> yeah. a coupe is a two-door. A sedan is a four-door. It's It makes sense. Why do you have to say... You know, there's even such things as a four door or a five door fastback. Why do you have to call it a coupe? Right. Why do you have so, to call uh, urban sports? So just- Mercedes and BMW are famous for this uh, in their cars, and BMW is a really good example because you can get a three or four series as a two door coupe, a a four door uh, four door sedan, a four door coupe. You can get it now even in in the GT, which is not a crossover, but it's a crossover with a hatch, <laughs> you know, and it totally screws everything up. And then that doesn't even get into the SUV. So they literally are, are micro-secting. And, like, at some point, like, 
Yeah, but I think bike the bike makers look at them and go like, well, they're doing it here, so why can't we do it here? Um, yeah. Well, when I first saw the Triumph uh, Street Cup, I saw a picture and I was like, well, that's pretty cool. I kind of like that. And then I was looking at the R9T Racer. I was thinking, wow, these are pretty neat retro bikes. But then I started looking more into the Triumph. And it's like the least interesting bike, really. It's just, it's pretty anemic. Uh, and so, you know, just comparing it to the R9T, uh, I would buy the R9T in a Harvey over the, the Triumph. But um, it almost kind of reminds me of a Harley thing because they're, it's just like more of the same. Like, mm-hmm. they, you know, put a fresh coat of paint on it and, and give it a, a fancy new marketing name. But it's just still the same thing that's been going on for the past 50 years. Well, it's, uh, it's a, it's basically, it's the street twin with two tone paint, a seat that you can't take a passenger on and a yeah. little plastic, uh, fly screen over the, over the, uh, I guess it has slightly lower bars, but yeah, it, you know, it's the Harley Roadster be- of the Sportster. You know, compared to, it's just, it's just, it's a little bit altered. It's the same. Well, it's kind of like the Bolt C-Spec. Yeah. It's the same bike, but we're going to play with the ergonomics a little bit and add some different styling to bits and bobs here and there. It's not really a different bike. No, I know. I am pretty disappointed about it. Um, I think it looks pretty cool. I'll give them that. Um, but underneath, it's just kind of the same thing as it's been for a while now. And it's just not nearly interesting enough to look at twice. So, well, maybe, agree. Maybe it'll be like the six cylinder GT that in five years I'll look at it and go, Oh, wow. Maybe that was cool after all. So I don't know. Yeah. But right now I'm kind of like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Um, I was interested to see the GSX R125. Um, but is that something that, that is going to be here? Oh, uh, we're no. never going to get no. that. No, that, no. If it was a 400, sure. Um, even if it yeah, was a 300 no or a 320 or a 350, but a 125, no, only yeah. beta is gutsy enough to come out with a high end 125 bikes. That's a, that's yeah. definitely like, um, Oh, what are they? It's a learner. It's a learner permit yeah. bike for Europe, right, essentially, right. and right. and also for say that. Southeast Asia, you know, for yeah. Thailand and Which, Malaysia and all that. Quite honestly, I would buy that in a heartbeat over their ugly, slow 250, right. the GW 250, <laughs> the B King. This is kind of like the <laughs> the the B Duke or whatever, the B yeah. Earl. One thing I was really disappointed with, I was really hoping we were going to see a production Husqvarna Vitplian, and that didn't show up. And I was really kind of fingers crossed, hoping that a Vitplian was going to show up there. And you got Italy in a couple. You got Italy in a month, so that's a good point. Good point. That may be a better place to introduce it there, anyways. So the um, the two bikes that I really saw that kind of caught my eye. The first one, not until I actually read through it, because I just saw it and go, oh, okay, whatever. Um, I guess we'll do that one first, is the Ninja, Kawasaki Ninja 650, which I know a lot of people like, and I've always been pretty nonplussed about, um, but that's a new new chassis. I think they read, it's not a new motor, but they redid the motor, but the most interesting thing is they chopped 40 pounds off the chassis. Wow. I mean, in, in a motor, I mean, 
that's huge. Yeah, that really uh, is. So, you know, maybe it's a total, I'm sure that some weight got added back in because of like modern electronics and Euro 4 and all kinds of crap like that. Um, but still, I think you wonder like, who engineered the original chassis yeah. and how, how well, they left 40 pounds of meat on there. It, it's easy if you think about it because it, it's always been a budget bike, right? I mean, it's something yeah. built to a budget. So you're going to slap steel frame and you're just going to brace the crap out of it so that it'll just run till, you know, Keith Richards dies. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and so I think this one, they actually, well, with modern CAD design, you can kind of go, not quite, but, you know, 35 keystrokes. I need these dimensions. I need to maximize the strength, and, and it does 75, 80% of the work for you, right? It, and it so may it's not much even easier be CAD. To, it may be the manufacturing technology. Yeah. Mass produce something to, you know, tighter specifications of, of strength and, and material porosity and stuff like that so you can make something lighter and still have something you can produce at the same price. Robotic welding is so much better as far as what angles it can do nowadays. Like you go into a modern a modern manufacturing plant and you watch robots weld and you're just like, holy, there's very few things that that need to be manually welded anymore, at least on a car line. So I'm assuming even more so in, in motorcycles where you really need to watch every single dime you can in production cost. Is the chassis that's on this a tubular mm-hmm. steel chassis yep. or is it? Yep. Oh, okay. It's tubular. I'm trying to remember if they kept it as uh as steel or went to aluminum. Um, but I want to say it's got, it's, I'm off the top of my head. I'm going to say it's steel just, it's almost from a cost standpoint. It has yeah. to be. Yeah. Yeah. But I thought, I found that pretty interesting. Just when I saw the weight reduction, that really blew my mind to how much, how much they cut off. Well, which if they went from tubular to, to some kind of investment cast spar frame would be a well, huge weight savings. Are you looking at a picture of the frame or a picture of the, bike fully I'm looking dressed. at a picture of the bike are you thinking there's know. a tubular frame hidden behind some uh, i i uh, kind of almost looks like a plastic piece that helps the fairing transition into the gas tank but it's hard to tell oh I, I i yes i found a uh a ghosted picture showing the frame and it definitely looks like there is uh covers are covering up a an all aluminum or an all tubular frame yeah yeah, yeah. That, um, that makes more sense. I wish I could find where I saw that because it was actually a bare, a picture of the bare frame and stuff. But I don't. Anyways, it doesn't really matter. Um, the the other one, just from a racing standpoint, after so many years, Honda's finally come out with a new uh, Fireblade slash CBR 1000 RR and are going to have uh, two different versions of it. One, one or three, a regular, an SP, and an SP2, and Obviously, the SP2 being geared more towards the uh, uh, towards racing, but they're only going to make 500. The parts are going to be, you know, you kind of got to be someone to get them deal. So, um, yeah. but the of, with all the changes, they kept the chassis or the ba- the basic frame almost the same, and they didn't really make that many changes to the engine. So I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting to see. It was they dropped some weight, um, 10 more horsepower, and what it does for the street versus what it does for the racing kind of doesn't you know they don't necessarily have to mean one or the other because the kawasaki zx10 was kicking ass on a racetrack and every street you know every like every test of super sport bikes or uh, sport bikes it usually come in like third place and i'm like okay the the two don't necessarily match but yeah it's it's interesting because it it was a 10 year old bike to begin with so right it 
Honda just hasn't seemed like they really are serious about competing with the other sport bike, you know, with Yamaha and Kawasaki, either in the hyper street bike or in leader class production bike racing. Yeah, in production bike racing, I would agree with you, yes. It's like they're doing it, but they're trying to do the minimum they need to to stay reasonably competitive. And they really haven't been in World Superbike for a number of years. I mean, they got Nikki Hayden riding this year, who's had a little six, a little more success. Um, but they, the, I've got to believe the only reason they signed to, or he signed with them, even though he's a pretty loyal Honda guy, um, is they had to show him something and promise him some stuff. Because when you're at the back end of your career and you still want to win, you, you're not going to sign in. He's he's not going to sign in for a paycheck because he's got more money than he's ever going to spend to begin with. So, yeah. Should be interesting. Yeah. Um, so the other ones that was interesting was uh, sometimes manufacturers do pay attention to what customers and everyone else says. I noticed the BMW S1000 series, both the Adventure and the Standard bike, mm-hmm. uh, made some strides to get rid of the buzziness in the in the in the bars that everyone complained about, uh, and the pegs too. I thought that was kind of uh, like, oh hey, yeah. Maybe this is an issue. I thought that was rather interesting. Yeah, I wonder if uh, that was an accident. Like, it just kind of so happened that they engineered it out or if they actually listened to the uh, the owners and made some design changes. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so much of this, uh, we talked about how not uh, so many bikes are changing, or uh, but then you got to remember Euro 4 really kicks in in strength next year, so a lot of yeah. people had to make a lot of different changes and there's some other ones that we didn't bring up that i'm like okay to want aprilia and a few other people like little changes but it's all for mostly electronics and euro 4 compliance so yeah which apparently yeah. is a real pain in the ass to deal with yeah it uh, sounds yeah. like it p what else grabbed you in the for what we uh, put together as a list and maybe some other stuff you saw you know i it, it's really hard for me to care uh <laughs> The, the sport bikes, just, I'm, I'm past having, that. having any yep. interest. You know, I'm an old crotchety man. The idea <laughs> of being in a tuck, trying to get to the edge of the envelope just doesn't interest me. And on the other hand, uh, you know, most of these things are going to be so expensive for so long, even on the used market. That it's really hard for me to, to relate to them personally. So it's kind of a, uh, eh. yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of it is, I think motorcycles are getting a bit more like cars in that it's becoming a mature enough technology that everybody knows what works. And it's really hard for somebody to come up with something totally unique you know it's kind of like uh as a parallel personal watercraft they're they look and their construction stuff is getting more and more similar by the year if you go back and you look at what they were doing in you know 1988 89 90 we had these little manufacturers doing these really wild totally uh off the wall blank sheet ideas 
And frankly, most of them didn't work, which is why they're not around anymore. But it was still very interesting. Now, the pressures of the economy and just a knowledge of, hey, this is going to work. And there's just not that much that's really different except for styling. And that's why you get things like the, uh, what do they call it? The street cup, which just Mm -hmm. sounds like a part of athletic apparel i wouldn't want to buy you know it's like, it's like, oh did you get a new street cop and it's like yeah it fits in my leathers great um the, yeah i know the, what you're saying on that because it's it's really it's been that way in the dirt bike market for years and years now where the differences between uh rmz 450 and a kx 450f and a yz 450f and a cr 450 they're really the differences are so minute now that you're really just buying a color. Um, you know, the steering angles are the same. Uh, they even use the same manufacturers of suspension, you know, shower KYB. Um, and so really it's just like buy the color that you want. And, and so maybe that's kind of how street bikes are getting to where, um, they know what works, they know what doesn't. And there's some color and, and some small design differences, but it's just kind of becoming a little bit. So, so the one outlier for motorcycles and why there is, I don't want to say a bright future, but certainly light at the end of the tunnel for motorcycles is as cars become more and more automated. And maybe that's what most people want. They want some appliance to transport them from place to place. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you actually want to be involved in the driving process, you're not going to be able to do that in a car or you're, you're going to be very limited in what you can do in a car in the next 15 to 30 years um, between governments and insurance companies regulating what you can and can't do in a car going forward. Um, I'm not exactly sure how you're going to have an autonomous motorcycle. Yeah. It just doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, And, and that, that is wonderful. (laughs) I am so glad for that because, you know, either they're going to just ban motorcycles when cars do become autonomous. Um, Hopefully not. Uh, either that or the motorcycles will be the ultimate form of escape, um, even more so than they are now. And, and I think unlike cars, now I realize that some people use motorcycles as transportation, especially Southeast Asia. You know, you see the people with a family of seven on a, on a little step through <laughs> or something like that. Motorcycles for most people in most parts of the world are not transportation. Uh, we just, there was just a post on Hooniverse, uh, a couple of days ago. The question was, will there ever be robotic, you know, autonomous motorcycles? And Alf said, no, motorcycle, or robots have too much common sense to ride motorcycles. And I rep- <laughs> replied to him and said, no, robots don't have enough dopamine receptors to ride motorcycles. Motorcycles are supposed to be that visceral, enjoyable, sensory experience why would you want to get on something like a motorcycle and not have the experience of controlling it yourself right i'm not sure who's like yeah i want look look at how hard it's been for automatic transmissions to get traction in the motorcycle market you know honda's been trying to do it since the 70s and and it it's picking up some interest but it's still not like cars where 99% of 
all of the vehicles out there have automatic transmissions in them. Right. And mm-hmm. even the automatic transmissions in the automotive markets now are becoming more uh, controllable by the user. So you have paddle shifters and and things like that, where some of the new exotic sports cars don't offer manual transmission anymore, but there's still a lot of user input in them. But a motorcycle, like you were saying, Pete, who wants to sit on a motorcycle and be ridden to work? Uh, that's just kind of defeats the whole purpose of a motorcycle. And so I think it would be kind of a stretch to see autonomous motorcycling. I, I, if I were going to just sit in something, I think I would rather it be a car. A motorcycle, no, that's not going to happen. Uh, one thing we have, we've kind of saved the best for last year because you guys haven't brought up the big news for 2017, which is the new blacked out Suzuki S40 Boulevard. (laughs) For this year, bold new graphics, black fenders, black side covers, all black engine, black handlebars. It doesn't Uh, get any better than that. Hey, it, it, it is styling now. I mean, this is going to be, I, I predict a huge uptick in sales because of these dramatic changes that they've made. The number one selling motorcycle. The Suzuki Boulevard. Oh, that reminds me. We also didn't talk about how they completely demolished the looks of the FZ09 by making it into a miniature FZ10. Um, yeah. Oh, which, which, okay, sorry. So let's go full circle on that. Not only that, yeah. but as part of the, the updates of, uh, yeah, uh, for 17 is they're going to actually fix the suspension on that bike. So, uh, so I've heard conflicting things on that. I've heard that it's not updated. But I've also heard that it is. I don't know which one it is, but it needs an update. It's but updated. what it didn't need was an update <laughs> the- in the aesthetics to look. I, I mean, the FC10, it is what it is, right? I, I like the bike. The aesthetics, you can kind of take it or leave it. But I do not think they needed to do the same thing with the FC09. <laughs> I think it's to separate it some from the more retro 900 which admittedly yeah. didn't look that much different since they already had the what the heck is that the, the well the XSR nine hundred is the yeah. yeah yeah since they already had that kind of moving the other nine hundred more to be like the FC ten kind of makes sense to me yeah I I think that it I like the FC nine um, aesthetics I like the headlight even for a cheap motorcycle um, you know it has a some really crappy turn signals whatnot on it but um i i don't mind the fc10 the new fc09 um is kind of like a worse version of the fc10 the way that it's executed in the headlights and i just really really don't like it it doesn't sit well with me if i were looking at buying an fc09 right now i would buy the 2016 hopefully you can get it for less than msrp um, and then let them sell the new FC 10 or 09s cause they just look awful. So, uh, I will share on my trip, my airline reading was the book <laughs> save the track Bonneville by John Roseman, who was the head of the workers. There were like two boards of directors there was the corporate board of directors and then the workers cooperative board of oversight or whatever and he was the head of the workers board 
during the Meriden co-op years. And for those of you who may not realize, uh, in the, the beginning of the book is fascinating because it really points out just how badly the BSA Triumph Group screwed the pooch in the last years of the 1960s into the 1970s. And they, they were on top of the world. And I would love to find somebody who was on the BSA side to give their, uh, point of view about it. Because everything I've ever heard is these people couldn't have done a worse job if they had deliberately wanted to sabotage the company. <laughs> and so it was truly fascinating. And then in uh, 1973, November 1973, they they kind of got an announcement of, hey, guess what? Uh, we're going to go with. Uh, two plants. We're going to take the old Norton plant and we're going to take the old BSA plant and they're going to build Triumphs and, and they were already building the Triumph triple there because it was based on the same bike as the BSA Rocket 3. So they were building the Trident there and they were building the Bonneville and Meriden at the traditional Triumph plant that had been around since, well, soon after they got bombed in Coventry in World War II. And, they kind of walked in and said, hey, guess what? Uh, you're going to build about, I don't know what it was, 500 more, 1,700 more motorcycles, and then you're all out of job, and we're going to move your motorcycle over to the old BSA plant because the BSA people screwed up so bad that uh, everything's falling apart, so sorry you're out of a job. <laughs> and some of these people were second generation, you know, their wives worked there, their sons worked there, their father worked there, and they just kind of went, um, no, we're going to have a sit-in, and they locked out the management Good for them. <laughs> of Norton Village Triumph, and the labor government had just gotten into power, and they went, yeah, we're pro-union, so we're going to negotiate a deal where we're going to loan the money to these workers for them to be able to buy out the intellectual property, the manufacturing rights, and the the physical plant and tooling for this motorcycle so that they can continue to build it, which was pretty much unprecedented up to that time. And that part of the book was really fascinating. But then when he became the director of the, the, the board, he had access to all the meeting minutes and decided to put them all into the book. Oh, the minutia that is recorded in this book is excruciating to try and get through. So I'm, I'm hoping that towards the end, I, I get a little bit more, but even just the photographs and stuff are so cool. As someone who bought a 1979 Bonneville in 1981, when they were leftovers, reading the story about what they were struggling with at that time period. Cause I, I bought a Triumph because I read, I think it was October 1980 Motorcycles Magazine. They interviewed the heads of the Meriden Cooperative. And I was so impressed with that article that I went out and bought one. After reading this book, I almost want to go out and buy another Meriden Triumph <laughs> while I can still find one in good condition for a decent price just to say I have one because it's such a cool story. Uh, I, I'm not sure I would recommend the book at this point, but I'm going to keep reading it. Yeah. 
at some point, somebody is going to write the definitive history of this. And I could honestly see the whole workers takeover being a Hollywood movie someday because it's such a fascinating story of you got to be kidding me. They really did that. And those people had really done this, 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 and this to screw things up before. No wonder these guys were mad. So, yeah. <laughs> well, we should probably wrap up at uh, this point. I think we've been right close to an hour on this show. So, well, it's good to be back. <clears throat> it's good to have you guys back to talk to. And uh, yeah. anybody who wants to we- send, send us uh, questions, comments, Go to yep. the Hooniverse, and you can uh, look at pictures of all the bikes we talked about. And fortunately, we talked about mostly new bikes, so I will have not a hard time finding manufacturer's press photos that I can reproduce of all of these bikes because they're all brand new. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. Make sure that you uh, you go over to Facebook and like us over on Facebook. Follow us. It's a good place to ask questions because many people do. Yeah, uh, and Twitter. Facebook.com, Facebook.com, the false neutral. Twitter is at the false neutral. Yep. And uh, of course, as Pete, as you said, go over to Hooniverse and every Thursday, uh, or sorry, Tuesday, uh, we're up there and lots of pictures and com- ask questions and comment over there on all of our posts as well. Yeah. Rate us on iTunes too, if you don't mind. Yes. Oh, yes. yeah, yeah, please. Please rate us on iTunes because we were ranked 44th. In the automotive category, last time I checked, very let's, let's make that. it to forty-three. Well, we were <laughs> we we've been anywhere from sixty to a hundred and ten. I was talking to Brad over at Camden Tub, and uh, he was saying, "Yeah, they they have the most inscrutable ratings algorithm for trying to figure out why you go up and down in the iTunes." But one so, of the things is people rating you. Yeah. So. And another one is how often you upload, which is why the click and clack guys, even though that one of them has been dead for a number of years and they haven't had a new show in X amount of years, they've got 30 years of recordings to keep uploading. So they upload like one or two every day. And um, so that's why that they're the number one podcast in automotive. So, yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. And thanks to all our listeners. And we will see you next week. Have a good night. Bye.